the whole productivity industry is another thing that would never occur to Singaporeans. All the ways to trick yourself to do the thing you need to do. I'm sorry, I just wake up and do it. Like, I truly don't understand. I think so. I think, Caitlin, you asked me what my productivity hack was. Like, I wake up and if I have a list of things to do, I do the one that's most painful and the one that I don't want to do the most. There's no hack. Welcome, friends, to Obviously the Future, the show that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Who do we got today? Today, we have Douglas Chu, who is a partner and coach in residence at Avalanche BC. Douglas grew up in Singapore. He studied at UPenn. And he got a PhD from Stanford in English before starting his career at McKinsey. He has done hundreds of hours of training for his coaching practice, but he's also built up his skills across many different disciplines. And it's exciting for us to talk to Douglas today about his background, what led him to, to where he is, and what he thinks is obviously the future. I want to start with your tagline on your coaching website is, uh, I coach uh, leaders to do the inner work that unlocks hypergrowth. Yeah. It's a fascinating niche. Explain why leaders, why hypergrowth? I'm surprised you didn't go for the inner work part, which is probably the... <laughs> I think all coaches want to do the inner work, don't they? Is that... I don't know. I don't know. The interesting tension in there is the inner and the outer, right? Like the idea that most of the people I coach have specific external outcomes they're trying to meet, right? They want to raise around or they need to figure out this particular working relationship that they have or they need to scale their company. So there's always like an external objective. And I actually think it can be a bit counterintuitive to draw their attention internally. The idea that what we're going to spend our time on is not actually coming up with an action plan for you to raise around. We're really going to talk about what makes it hard for you to do that today and what patterns or ideas or beliefs you have that hold you back. Maybe it's obvious to some people that coaching really is internal, but I found even in the introductory conversations that I have with some clients, it's still takes a bit of effort. There's a kind of strain of coaching that's more call it accountability coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Where you rely on your coach to come up with a plan with you and work with you on it and keep you accountable. That's actually not really what I do. I think I feel like most of my clients already very type A, <laughs> already have a lot of plans, already want to do a lot of work. And what's really what really needs to be worked on or unlocked is really internal. How do you get them to go to the inner side when <laughs> there's so much pressure on the out? How did I do it with you, Caitlin? How did it go with you? The magic of a good coach is you don't even realize that it's happening. They somehow, they push you. You don't really realize. And then all of a sudden you're there talking about what the inside is. And then some insight comes from it. And then you work with your coach to go deeper. That's the marker of a good coach. And the coaches that I've had that haven't really done inner work. It was clear that it was just always going to be surface or driven by me. They weren't going to challenge me. So I think you're getting to a few things, right? Like the feeling that I'm not getting you to do anything is primarily because it's question led. I'm just asking questions about what you're saying. So there's an art to that. Obviously, the question may come from a place of I have a instinct or a feeling about what may be happening, but I'm not going to just tell you what's happening. I'm going to ask you and perhaps help you to get there on your own. So that there is the questioning piece. Obviously, the other two parts that you mentioned that there is a bit of challenge involved, right? If I'm asking you a question that generates an insight, it's usually a question that you, for various reasons, 
have never asked yourself, have never thought to ask, maybe didn't even think it was a question that could be asked. So there's an element of that as well. That's what gets people to kind of not so much focus on what am I trying to get done, but try to start to observe how am I actually thinking about the problem? How am I framing the problem? Rather than looking through the lens at what you're looking at, grow the company, what is the color or shape or kind of peculiarity of this lens that you have? I want to be a fly on the wall for the Douglas <laughs> Caitlin coaching sessions. Any magical questions that you've unlocked for Caitlin? She'll have to answer this one. <laughs> one of the ones that it was a persistent theme that we've talked about over and over is when pitching LPs that you can get in this mindset of what does this person need to hear from me? And we've talked about, I am an unconventional person at Avalanche and what we're trying to do here is unconventional. And so ways of inviting people in to be part of our unconventional strategy and people can choose to join rather than thinking that I'm trying to figure out what they want to hear me say. Yeah, so different. I'm not going to put Kaylee on the spot, but versions of the questions I probably asked her then was like, what is so bad about not being what people want? Like, what is so scary about saying something that isn't what people want to hear? What's What feels dangerous about that? And she doesn't have to answer on the spot, but that's where that conversation could go. You're talking about the art of question asking and you're effectively prompting your clients and you're prompt engineering. <laughs> I'm curious how you reflect on that term. I have never thought of the analogy. That is interesting. I suppose... With my limited understanding of prompt engineering and AI, I think, is it fair to say that if you're prompting a language learning model, the kind of responses are probabilistic and constrained by what the model is trained on? That's and true, but isn't that true of humans too? Eric, but I would also take it a step further, which is to say, it's not hard to imagine a large language model becoming an excellent questioner in this regard. So what's the stop an AI from becoming a coach in this vein? Do you see any limitation other than processing power or the data set it's trained on for why yep. an AI can't perform that function of a coach in the way that you're describing in terms of trying to spark the types of questions that can allow you to dig deeper? Probably a complicated response. And I guess the simplest response is to say that if you believe that coaching is primarily a language-based interaction, right? If we took our conversation, me and Caitlin, and we just transcribed it, that's the content of the conversation. Well, I would argue that I'm probably reading and picking up on a lot of nonverbals as well. The way you say it, how you say it, the look you gave me when you said that word. There's a lot that's not language-based in the coaching interaction. Again, don't know how long it would take for an AI to pick those up, but I would argue the nonverbals actually can be the majority of what goes on in, in the coaching interaction. Wow, that's fascinating. You develop a relationship with someone and you feel responsible for answering those questions to them because you trust yeah. them. And I, if like I had an AI that told me to get go to the gym, like I probably would just ignore it. The relationship, I think of it almost like a container or a space right? You feel held by the relationship. Like you feel like it's safe. It's a container. You can tell me things that maybe you wouldn't say elsewhere. And that again, is a kind of a nonverbal felt sense. And not to say that you can't feel that for an AI. I complete, I was going to completely push yeah. back on Caitlin's suggestion because I think, yes, you just happen to pick on calling it an AI and using a chat interface, but it's not hard to imagine 
I don't know, even as kids with Tamagotchis, people would develop attachments. Like there's all sorts of ways to develop attachment that don't require the human interface. The AI could be masked in all sorts of different ways that I think could allow that container to feel even safer than a potential other human that has their own vulnerabilities or uh, not fully within your locus of control. Yeah. So I think it's hard to it's hard to continue this conversation much longer without getting into woo-woo language about energy, felt vibes or resonance. But I think there's a kind of mutuality of the emotional investment. Could someone invest in AI with affect and emotion? Yes. Can you invest in an AI coach like any emotion? Yes. But will you feel the reciprocity of that? I don't know. I don't know how well an AI coach can mimic or exhibit some of these nonverbals. Humans have discernment and judgment and experience and are able to relate. And maybe the AIs will get there at one point, but it's a very human skill to do what you're talking about. And this art of asking questions. Yeah. And if I'm being completely transparent, it's even difficult for me to completely articulate what it is I'm doing during a session. Like it's at that level of instinct. And so if we assume that to develop an AI coach, one actually has to disaggregate and deconstruct what it is I do at a very granular level to be able to develop the software, I think that would be the blocker. The fact that I can't even really fully articulate what it is I do makes me skeptical that you could duplicate that. Does that mean that there are times where you feel like you had a bad day, something happening? And you can feel in yourself that this is like a C minus coaching session. And whereas other times where you feel fully present, really immersed in that moment, do you recognize the variability in yourself in what you deliver? Absolutely. And I think some of the variability gets constrained by the mutual selection of clients, right? Like we have, that's why I do so many introductory calls. We feel each other out for 45 minutes, not dissimilar to like when people choose a therapist, there has to be some underlying kind of match in chemistry and expectation and so forth. So between the introductory calls I do, like the first sessions I do with people, there's a lot of variation. Sometimes I'm just like, not get, I'm not getting traction. Like we're not getting anywhere. There's some resistance. Why is not, why is it not fit? And often both sides feel that, right? In, in our own ways. But once both I and a client have agreed, that cuts out, I think, the tail ends. And then there's more of a variation between A minus to A plus, And we don't get the Bs and Cs. I'm interested in these personality frameworks. I guess the question is, can you give generic advice if you know the person's archetypes? That's an interesting one. So part by part, right? So yes, there are a lot of inventory systems out there. My favorite, I I work a lot with the Enneagram. It's my favorite for no more complicated reason that it's been so helpful to me. Like when I've lived it and experienced it and worked with it and found it helpful, that gives me the conviction to do it with my client. I think of these systems as kind of language. Like they give us a different vocabulary for talking about the same thing, right? Just to use Caitlin's example, because we've already brought it on the table. Like this idea of this reticence to say things that people don't want to hear or this attentiveness to what do you really want from me and how can I give you exactly that? Now, one could use any number of frameworks, right? Like we could use the MBTI and figure out what is it about the MBTI or a type that lends itself to that. We could use DISC or any number of things. So I find it's choosing systems or choosing models and inventories is a bit like choosing a language, like which language resonates best with you, that you understand, that you find helpful, and also obviously with the client that they understand it as well. 
Mm-hmm. And just to answer the last piece of your question is, yes, be, if you know your type, then there are generic like you can read the book, right? If you know your Enneagram type, yeah. then read the book and you know all the advice for like type seven or whatever it is. But I think a recurring theme of our conversation is that there's a difference between knowing and perhaps realizing. Well, you, you know that your type tendency is this, you know that the upside is this and the downside is this. And then what? So what? There's a kind of internalization where it drops below the neck, where you observe yourself doing the thing and you actually get to make a different choice. And that is much harder than knowing. We all do things that we know we don't totally. want to do. <laughs> so yes. the knowing yes. itself is clearly not the main thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? This is obviously the future. What do you believe about the future that most people don't? I think... What's obvious to me is that there is a broader cultural shift and maybe generational as well in terms of the willingness and facility and even interest in talking about, call it psychology or our our inner lives or just how we experience or how we make our way through the world. Uh, Sometimes that gets coded as like mental health. Gen Z is really willing to talk about mental health in a way that older generations haven't. So that is to me, obviously, the future. But in terms of the form that desire or need will get met, I actually have fewer convictions. Like even the thing I do, this one-on-one thing, it's just the way I do it now. It's just the kind of shape that this work takes for me now. I don't know if it's the best. I don't know if it's right scalable. It's clearly not scalable because if you're one-on-one, then that's just how many people you can coach. But if AI takes most of the other jobs, there's a lot more room for coaching to be <laughs> one-to-one. I feel like the main constraint on something like coaching is supply. Even though coaches popping up left and center, the constraint is something like wisdom is in short supply, right? You think of wisdom as a certain quantum of self-awareness, a certain quantum of doing your own work, a certain quantum of being able to understand yourself enough that you can make space for others and their experiences. That feels like a tall order to scale supply fast. Like that, that feels like the supply of that in the world is probably finite and isn't growing as quickly as the need for it. You got to coach the coaches. Yes. And if I hadn't been in therapy half my life, I definitely couldn't be a coach today. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your journey to becoming a coach? Like, especially a coach to entrepreneurs and founders. Your father is an entrepreneur. And we've talked in advance about how you grew up in a household where you had to manage a personality. Most successful entrepreneurs, as we know, as investors, have quirks and difficulties to them, right? So do you think that, like, how did growing up in that environment make you a more effective coach to founders that, you know, aren't in your family? Growing up in a dysfunctional family really helps (laughs) if you can survive it. Reading personality, understanding what's not said managing big personalities. Yes, I didn't even register that my father is of a personality type that perhaps we might see more commonly among founders. But just, yes, playing that role, having to, from a very early age, know how to work with other people and their inner lives. I think definitely there's Mm. unfortunately no better training than growing up in a dysfunctional family. And navigating through it successfully. Yes, you have to survive it. That's the big if. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely part of the context, but your career is so interesting to me. You have a PhD in some kind of literature and you were a McKinsey 
machine for a number of years. How does all that kind of pull together? It's still a work in progress. I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, like on my deathbed, I will finally realize, ah, that's how it all made sense. Because right now in the middle of it, it still continues to be quite hard to see how it all connects. I actually don't know what your PhD was in. I got a PhD in English at Stanford, which in some basic sense means I, I had to like familiarize myself with all of English and American literature from Beowulf up to now. So that's part of my training. And then my specific specialization, I had to like be able to teach 20th century American lit from like 1914, World War I, all the way to now. Any hot takes on English as a major? Is that book club? Do you still recommend that people major in book club? <laughs> I'm not a purist. I'm not like people should major in the humanities and fuck like getting a job. I have no right to say that because I went to Penn. I majored in English and I got like a dual degree. Like I did my work in undergrad degree, like a good Asian kid. I covered all my bases, did the thing I yeah. wanted and also did the thing that was practical. And I think it was looking back. Thank God I did that because when I graduated my PhD, like it was what I was going to do with it. I wasn't going to be a professor. I think that... The study of the humanities, the study of English, like if you, it's a privilege and it's a luxury. One that honestly, not many people will have, I think, as time goes by. The kids themselves are feeling the pressure not to study things like that. Would I recommend anyone do a PhD in English today? Like, absolutely not, unless you were independently wealthy. <laughs> and, and don't mind spending multiple years adjuncting and with no health insurance and benefits. Like, absolutely not. It's not, I don't think it's ethical to suggest that anyone should do that today. But mm. in my experience doing it between 2010 and 2017, it was this weird socially sanctioned period of my life where no one expected me to make a lot of money. No one expected me to do a lot. They were like, you're doing this thing for seven years, I'm not going to bother you. And so it's the closest thing to a kind of monastic or like religious retreat experience that you can get in this world without actually going off into the mountains. Because the truth is I couldn't do much more reading and writing than four hours a day. There's just so much I can do on my PhD a day. And the rest of the time I was like doing meditation retreats and traveling and volunteering and doing therapy and just like figuring my shit out. I was using that time to just, I don't know, become who I am now. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I like that breakout. English PhD says it is the modern day monk. It really is the closest thing. Of course, like you can use that time for any number of things. My experience was very peculiar and singular because of the way I chose to look at it. But yeah, what other experience lets you use your 20s in that way without parents or society like constantly badgering you about what the fuck you do in your life? I want to ask you if there's anything about growing up in Singapore that feels particularly salient either for you or for people in the innovation economy? I feel like a lot of questions that occur to the average American will just never occur to a Singaporean. Like, I think, you know, refer to the piece you had me read, by the way, the one about coercive productivity. Like this idea that yeah. Americans look at something and ask themselves, do I want to do it? How motivated am I? How will it make me feel? No Singaporean, at least in my cohort, would ever ask that. You wake up, you know what exactly you have to do, you do it, and you don't pause to ask yourself how you feel about it. I often say that no one ever asked me what I wanted until I got to the US. 
And then the questions wouldn't stop. What do you want in life? What do you want to do? What do you enjoy? No one, I'm not even kidding you, no parent, adult, teacher, no one ever asked me that in Singapore. It just doesn't come up because who cares? Do you think the pendulum is too swung too far in America? And honestly, like we probably need to just get our shit done a little bit more instead of asking how we all feel about it. It's positive and negative. It's positive in so far as if you want something done, execute it fast and to a certain standard, and you don't want to get too many questions, yeah, the Singaporean will do that. But you won't have to spend so much time explaining, here's why you have to do it, and here's why it's good for you, and so forth. But that it's this this a certain kind of discipline and pain tolerance that comes with that that can be very helpful. Yeah. You can imagine the applications here. But then the negative valence is probably sometimes you do want the questions. Sometimes the questions are important. <laughs> sometimes asking yourself, do you actually want to do this before embarking on it is actually a very important question. Yeah. Uh, in those cases, then that becomes a bit of a liability. And I have found myself at the far end near the completion of very painful projects and waking up and wondering why the hell I did any of that. So perhaps there is a bit of a personal and psychic cost to that kind of like blinders on discipline. You wrote that essay on suffering. Yeah. Is that what you're getting at? Like the concept? Uh, you may have been thinking about the one about pain tolerance. Yeah. No, it, I've often felt that my um, pain tolerance is a bit of an edge in terms of, look, like I, I may not be smarter or whatever, more talented than the next guy, but I will keep going for twice as long because I just don't have like the pain tolerance. What's more, what, what's one less hour of sleep or whatever? Like that's nothing, no skin off my back. Is it an edge for someone, a founder, a leader to have high pain tolerance? Absolutely. It's an edge. And if you could bet on a founder, bet on one of high pain tolerance, but personal cost, right? At what point is that too much, too much of a cost to pay? I was hearing someone talk about how as someone who hires a lot of employees from the Philippines and other Asian countries. And they were saying it's not just a cost-saving mechanisms compared to American labor for a lot of tasks. It's also they don't have the same questioning mindset. Like he's, the example he gave was like, every person I had hire in the US, doesn't matter how low they are, they want to schedule one-to-ones. They want to know what their growth plan is. It's like you hire people in Asia, it's just what's the to-do list and then they just execute the to-do list. And I found that to be interesting, uh, taking this shot, not just a wage saving mechanism, it's also like a emotional load saving to be able to hire people abroad. Yeah. And another word for what we're describing as compliance, right? As a trait, like high compliance versus like high, call it individual, indiv- individuality or something. Which again, like you're getting to the question of valence. I don't know. Like in certain cases, yes. Like when you just want something done fast, cheap, effective, maybe you don't want so many questions. So maybe you just want compliance. But I'm sure you can think of instances where actually you need the problem solving and the discussion. You want engagement. I remember a senior partner at McKinsey, like for like several years, she would ask me, what do you think? And I would just repeat back to her what she said and agree with her. And it took me a very long time to realize that she was actually asking. Like she wasn't just pro forma asking, she was actually asking. And it was just like this shock to my system that someone, I guess I'm pointing out that the compliance can go so deep that even when you are asking someone, what do you think? The the cultural compliance can go so deep that they don't hear the question at all. It's funny because I don't think of you as compliant at all. I left, right? Like I I, I am a product of Singapore, but I also left because... There were parts of it that I just found really difficult. And I do think I needed mm. to leave 
at 21 or whatever it was and grow up outside of that kind of environment. Yeah. Any other hot takes you have? What are your opinions on productivity hacks, to-do lists? Uh-oh. The whole productivity industry is another thing that would never occur to Singaporeans. Again, I'm just generalizing, but like this productivity of all the ways to trick yourself to do the thing you need to do. I'm sorry, I just wake up and do it. Like I truly don't understand. I think so. I think Caitlin, you asked me what my productivity hack was like. I wake up and if I have a list of things to do, I do the one that's most painful and the one that I don't want to do the most. There's no hack. Are you saying that there's a bit of that national character? Oh yeah, absolutely. About there? Where does that well, come from? Two things, right? First thing is if you think of Singapore, it was this very conscious national strategy. We have no national resources, no oil, no coal, no whatever, nothing, only people. So it was a very conscious strategy to be that country, right? Where the MNCs would want to set up shop and have this really compliant, educated, English-speaking workforce, because that was really the only thing we could offer. And you can point to whatever artifacts of society that kind of engineer that, the education system being one of them, very rigorous. And I mean, we share this with Korea and Japan, but also like military service. If you can require like an entire cohort population of people to spend like they're 19, 20, 21 in the military doing what you tell them to do, then beyond that, like what couldn't you get them to do? Right. I mean, what else could you ask me that I won't do having already done that? See, that's the kind of context that these AIs aren't going to have. Maybe they will eventually, but not this generation. Yeah. I'm just skeptical of any claims of what AI will not have. It just seems like a matter of time. It's, can you plug in the right data to the right model? Actually, to, yeah, actually clarify what I was saying. AI already is like Singapore. I heard this, this guy talking about how AI is like the most diligent human researchers on the planet. And like, those are basically Singaporeans. Uh, I mean, there's probably already a Ministry of Manpower task force somewhere in Singapore figuring out the policy paper on this. All right, nice. Okay, so Caitlin has this list. It's called My Younger Self. And it's basically a bunch of the timeless books that she would tell her younger self to read. You're a PhD in English, so the pressure's on. What's your one book that you'd want to share with your younger self and why? I'm going to sidestep that question. I will get to I will get to it some form of answer, but I'll sidestep that question because I feel like you come to these things when you're ready. Like I've reread books like in the space of five years and the first time I'm like, what the fuck is this? And five years later, it makes complete sense. So I don't know that this whole like, oh, I read something really good at this moment and I wish I'd encountered it 10 years earlier. I don't know that quite works as a premise. I think we find the things exactly at the right moment because we're looking for them and are ready to hear them. He's attacked your fundamental I am premise. attacking the premise. Defend am, yourself, <laughs> Caitlin. Are you just willing to take this line down? Yeah, what book would you recommend to Doglish who's coming out of Wharton to read? Oh man, I do wish I had encountered Tibetan Buddhism earlier in life. I think I found my way to it at age about 25 and then lapsed and then I really got back to it during my PhD. I think if I had grown up with it, of course, like a lot of East Asian cultures are like culturally Buddhist, but yeah. there's, there's just not much of the actual philosophical content of the Buddhism. But when I finally encountered even just the most popular authors like Pema Children or whatever, I really do wish I had encountered it earlier in life. I think it would have. It would have just well, helped me feel. <laughs> yeah. What is the tattoo that you have on your back? 
Oh. What does it uh, say? I'm not going to take off my shirt and show No, no, I know. It's in our follow-up episode that we released on OnlyFans. So it is actually Chinese calligraphy that I found an artist in Hong Kong who is both a calligraphy artist and a tattoo artist, which means that she's able to do like the actual, make it look like brushstrokes. And it's a verse from a Buddhist text called the Bodhicharya Vatara, which just translates to something like Bodhisattva's way of life. And it's actually one of the prayers that like the whole, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says is one of his favorite prayers. And in English, it goes something like this. For as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, so too may I remain to dispel the miseries of the world. And so the Bodhisattva is like in kind of Tibetan cosmology or Buddhist cosmology is this being who kind of chooses to take rebirth over and over again repeatedly, even though they don't have to help sentient beings on the road to enlightenment. And they also put off their own. Like they could go off and get enlightened and just peace out. Like they could keep coming back. They may take form in this existence just to be at the right place at the right moment to give someone the right nudge. And that's it. That's literally the entire reason for their existence. And they'll just do this for eons and eons. So there's something about that aspiration that I find very inspiring. Nice. Thank you. I love that. Douglas, thank you so much for joining us. That was awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back with another episode of Obviously the Future soon. Thanks.